In junior high, I had to take a test. I had to list the United States presidents from top to bottom. And I wasn't very good at memorization. I'm still not very good at memorization, but the, the teacher at the time, he, he had a trick for us. He taught us a song, and it went something like this, and you can join in, feel free, if you know it. Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Adams, Jackson, Van Buren, Harrison, Tyler Polk, Polk Taylor, Fillmore, Pierce Buchanan, Lincoln, Johnson, Grant Hayes, Garfield, Arthur, Cleveland, Harrison, Cleveland, McKinley, Roosevelt, Taft, Wilson, Harding, Coolidge, Hoover, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, and Clinton, who was president at the time. What do you think of that? Huh? Wow. Junior high, mind you. And I still know that song by heart. I will always know the list of the U.S. presidents. Why? Because my junior high teacher put it to song. He put it to song. Friends, this morning, we are going to read a song. It's a hymn. In New Testament scholarship circles, it's known as a Christ hymn. It would have been composed in and around the decades following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, likely by the Apostle Paul himself or a disciple or close associate of Jesus, a leader in a church. And these songs, of which there are a number of them in the New Testament, would be sung, would be recited from memory by local gatherings of churches across Asia Minor as they grew to understand the doctrine of Jesus Christ. As they read the Old and New Testaments and as they began to understand more and more who this Jesus was who had came and lived and died and rose again, they put Doctrine. They put theology about their faith to song, much like we sing great hymns and songs uh, of, in the more modern age, uh, uh, praise songs, which speak of our great faith and the theology and the doctrine of that faith. Paul said on your outline there, and by the way, the title of this message is The Christ Hymn, a timely song for the church in Colossae. The Christ Hymn, a timely song for the church in Colossae. Open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. And if you're grabbing a, a pew Bible, you can turn to page 622. Colossians chapter 1 is where we will spend some time here this morning. And in chapter 3 of that same letter, remember Colossians is a letter written from Paul, the Apostle Paul, to the church in Colossae. And in chapter 3 of that letter, Paul said this, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So Paul even says in his letter to the church at Colossae, you're to sing songs, hymns, spiritual songs, 
singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. He knew and anticipated that the church would be singing, much like we sing today. And so, in his letter, in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, he wrote, he recited that perhaps he wrote himself a very famous Christ hymn at the time. Beginning in verse 15 and going to verse 20, we'll read it one time through together. Verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1, here is the Christ hymn. He, that is Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father, that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of of his cross. Whether written by Paul himself, which is what I believe, or whether it was quoted from memory and written by perhaps another disciple of Christ or a leader in the church, this is unquestionably what New Testament scholars would call a Christ hymn. You say, well, how do you know it's a song? Well, there are a number of indicators in the Greek language that would suggest this. I don't want to go into great details. If you're really curious, we can talk about it afterwards. Uh, But there are a number of indicators based on the syntax and the grammar and the way it's arranged that this would have been a typical song or hymn that would be recited in church or even sung in church, much like we would recite a creed or sing a song. We all know the words of amazing grace. So also... The churches of Asia Minor would have seen verses 15 to 20 and would have almost immediately recognized them because they said them over and over again. Why Why this hymn? Why does Paul here in this part of Colossians 1, his letter, why does he recite this hymn? Well, on your outline there, I've mentioned there under the Christ hymn that Paul uses this familiar song to undercut the rising mystic false teaching in the church at Colossae. He uses the hymn really for a number of reasons. I should say the first and foremost is to express well-known doctrine about Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Well, Paul recites it in this well-known Christ hymn. But secondly, and perhaps most pointedly for this letter to this church, is that he wrote, he recited this hymn because it spoke directly to some of the issues that were taking place in the church. Take a look again at verses 15 to 17. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. 
and in him all things consist. I'm excited to get to chapter 2. We're not there yet, but as we get to chapter 2 of this letter, we will begin to understand a few things about the situation in Colossae. The first, though, that I'll mention, I'll mention it briefly, is this. Those false teachers on your outline, the false teachers in Colossae, number one, they sought higher spiritual experiences by means of unique religious practices. Write down the word practices. They sought higher religious experiences, spiritual highs, by means of unique religious practices. And Paul knew that. And so he began to address that in reciting this hymn. We'll see how in a minute. A second issue that Paul was grappling with among the people in that church were that the false teachers that had infiltrated the church were very much enraptured by the powers and sought the favor of other spiritual beings like angels. Write down that word, the phrase spiritual beings. The false teachers in Colossae were enraptured by the powers and sought the favor of other spiritual beings like angels. And in fact, Colossians 2 verse 18 mentions that there were some in the church who advocated the worship of angels. The worship of other spiritual beings. But the Christ hymn, this song, this creed that Paul quotes here for us, declares that all power and authority belong to Jesus, that He alone is the only mediator through whom spiritual experience begins and thrives. I'll say that again. But the Christ hymn declares that all power and authority belong to Jesus and that He alone is the only mediator through whom spiritual experience begins and thrives. While the false teachers in Colossae were hoping, hoping, these false teachers were, they were hoping that angels and other spiritual beings would manifest the divine. They were hoping that that the worship of angels and, and the worship on certain days and certain festivals, they were hoping that such practices and seeking after higher powers would somehow manifest the divine nature to them, would give them a sense of who God was or who, what the divine nature is. But Paul is quite clear in verse 15. He says that only Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Only Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Let's take a look at that word image. We're, by the way, we're going to be looking a little bit technically today at some of this language. This is a little bit more of a study today. Um, but I want you to hang in there. Because the words and the phrases that we will understand and begin to grapple with, they will give us a greater picture of who Jesus is. Of the doctrine that we so greatly hold about Jesus. It's called Christology. The doctrine of Christ. So let's look at this Christology of Paul and the early church. The first thing he says about Jesus, he says that he is the image of the invisible God. The word image there, akon in Greek, meaning representation, usually representation of God. Examples of this word image uh, in Scripture would be situations like 
in Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, when he would erect a statue, that would be considered an image, an image of his deity. Also, you might think of uh, Caesar's coin in uh, New Testament times. Jesus held up a coin and said, whose image is on this coin? And he said, it's Caesar's. And he says, give it back to him. Jesus wasn't too concerned about money. The image of the beast in Revelation. Again, an image. But there can also be images that don't uh, represent God or a deity because we also know that human beings are said to be created in God's image. We are not divine, but we reflect God's handiwork. Now, on your outline there, there is an important distinction, though. We are created according to God's image. We are created as human beings. We are created according to, write that down, God's image. But Paul says that Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. We are created according to God's image. Paul says Jesus is the exact image. He's the exact representation. He is the perfect picture. Whereas we only showcase God's characteristics and attributes in part. Jesus is the perfect image or representation of God. And Paul's words here, that Jesus is the exact image of God, was especially important for a first century audience. The first century audience that heard these words of Paul, a Greco-Roman world, the people in in Colossae, they were in a world filled with imagery and idols. The first century Roman world was filled with physical idols, visible gods. And yet we know from Scripture, according to John 1, that no one has seen God at any time. It says in our text, in verse 15, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And so naturally, the Roman critique, the Gentile critique, the people who were non-believers in all of the Roman world, one of their greatest critiques of Judaism and of Christianity later on was that you can't even show us your God. You can't even manifest to us your God. We have these images. We have these idols. We erect statues. Where is your God? And Paul's response is, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus is the exact image, the visible image of our invisible God. Yes, John 1.18 is correct. No one has seen God at any time. But John goes on to say, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Jesus has declared who the Father is. And no longer can it be said of Judaism, now fulfilled in Christ, that we can't even see your God. We don't know what He looks like. We don't know what He acts like. Paul can say definitively, look at Christ and you are looking at my God. Still, the Gentile world, they worshipped many gods. And we know that false teachers in Colossae even worshipped angels. 
according to chapter 2, verse 18. Some gods and some angels were viewed as more significant than others. But a typical Gentile family, would they would worship and pay heed to many gods. And so Paul, wanting to further set Christianity apart from the common religions of the day, went on to call Jesus the firstborn over all creation. Notice what it says in verse 15. He, that is Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Paul wanting to separate Christianity apart from the common religions of the day went on to describe Jesus as the firstborn. This hymn, this creed, went on to describe Jesus as the firstborn. Now this is an interesting word in Greek. Prototokos. And as this word came to be studied and mulled over, over the centuries, by the early part of the 4th century, in the early 300s AD, there was a man by the name of Arius who read this term and who looked at a few other scriptures in which this same term is mentioned, firstborn. And he read this text and he concluded, Arius did, 300 years after Christ, that Paul was speaking temporally of Christ. That is to say that Paul was speaking of the fact that Jesus was literally the first one born or the first one created by God. This was known as... this came to be understood as heresy in the early church, as we recognize that today. In fact, in response to Arius' heresy, in response to his statement that he read this text and he said, well, see, firstborn, that means Jesus was born. That means Jesus had a beginning. That means Jesus was created, Arius said. In response to Arius's heresy, the church came up with what you and I now know today as the Nicene Creed. It's unfortunate that our hymnals do not have the creed in them today. I think our previous hymn books did. But I wanted to read to you a portion of it. You'll notice some of the language comes directly from Colossians 1. This was the Nicene Creed. This was the creed, the statement, that the church solidified, codified, in response to Arius' heresy. The church said this, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, of all that is seen and unseen, We believe in the one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through whom all things were made. The church made a statement right after Arius, codified in the Nicene Creed. You can look it up online. There was a, a statement in 325 A.D. and it was revised in 381. I just read you read the, from the revision of the Nicene Creed. And while most today have come to reject Arius' heresy and his heretical readings of passages like Colossians 1.15, there are still some groups today that contend that Jesus is a created being. Among them, most prominently, are the Jehovah's Witnesses, also the Mormon Church, Lesser known is the Mormon church, but they do in fact believe that Jesus was a created being. They call him the Son of God. So do the Jehovah's Witnesses. But both Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons 
consider Jesus, in their teachings, they consider Jesus to be a created being. Their immediate reaction to reading the term firstborn is to say, aha, he was created. Why do they do that? You might be saying, well, Neil, what else does firstborn mean? Doesn't it mean the first to be born? Yeah, it does. In fact, in a lot of contexts in Scripture, it does mean, temporally speaking, the first one to be born, the firstborn. But there are a number of instances in Scripture in which the term firstborn has nothing to do with temporal priority. Think of the patriarchs. Think of Abraham. Who was Abraham's son? Who was his first son? I heard Isaac and I heard Ishmael. Who was his first son? Ishmael. But who was Abraham's firstborn? Isaac. You see, the first one, the first son of Abraham was a, a young man by the name of Ishmael. Born outside of wedlock. Born of, uh, of a slave to the family. Because Abraham was not patient enough to wait for an heir. And so he went outside his barren wife's womb and had a son, Ishmael. But who was considered the firstborn? That is to say, who did the scriptures recognize as the firstborn of Abraham? Isaac. Think of Jacob and Esau. Who was born first, Jacob or Esau? Esau was born first. But who received the blessing of the father and became the firstborn? Jacob. Turn to Psalms, middle of your Bible. Psalms chapter... 89, real quickly. Psalm 89, right in the middle. Psalm 89, verse 27. Wonderful text. Speaking of David, what God's going to do for him. Psalm 89, verse 27. Psalm 89, verse 27. Psalmist writes... Also, I will make him, that is David, if you read it in context, also I will make David my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Was David the firstborn in his family? No. In fact, he was the runt of the litter. When, uh, when he was seen by uh, Samuel, it was like, well, that guy cannot possibly be the one on whom God's favor rests. David was the runt of the litter. And yet, and yet, the psalmist speaks, quoting the Lord, speaks of the fact that David will be declared the firstborn. Not temporal priority, but something that's bestowed. And that's where, on our outlines, this will be helpful to write down. On the back of your outline, as a matter of fact, next page. Firstborn language is often used metaphorically. Metaphorically to suggest rights, privileges, and supremacy that is bestowed upon someone. I'll read that again. Firstborn language is often used metaphorically to suggest rights, privileges, and supremacy that is bestowed upon someone. Of course, firstborn here... The language of Prototokos here in Colossians 1.15 emphasizes Jesus' unique relationship to God. His rights, 
his privileges, his supremacy, not his creation. Colossians 1.15 emphasizes that Jesus is the preeminent one, the supreme one over all the universe. He is the one who has been afforded all rights, all privileges. He is supreme over all. And that's precisely where Paul takes this hymn as he continues to recite it in verse 16 and 17. For by Jesus all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. For by Him, or in Him, all things are created either by Christ as the instrument of creation, which He was, or also in Him, that is, within His sphere, in His presence. All of this took place. All of the created order, the things in heaven, took place in Christ's presence. The things on earth took place in Christ's sphere. The entire universe was orchestrated as Jesus saw fit. Things visible. Things invisible. What are those invisible things? He mentions four. Thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. We should think of these terms as they're mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament in terms of their spiritual implications. He's speaking particularly of spiritual powers, particularly those last two, principalities and powers. There are some six, those, those two words are mentioned together some six times in the New Testament, always suggesting spiritual forces, usually spiritual forces of wickedness. We'll get to that in just a minute. That is to say that nothing exists, all things in heaven and on earth, Nothing exists that Christ did not first make Himself. That is not to suggest, however, that Jesus created evil or evil beings. In fact, we spoke about this um, just before Christmas. So we talked about the tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary. Many, many people asking the question, how could God do this? How could God allow this? How could God let this happen? And some people in that day and age, this, this past month, they would, they would look upon the tragedy and look at other tragedies like it and they would blame God and they would say, how could you? But the truth is, God is not the author of evil. God is good. And Jesus is God. And so all that Jesus is, is good. And because He loved us, because He loved what He created, He gave His creation the free will to love Him, or if they so desire, to turn away from Him. He gave that to humans, and at a point in time past, He gave that to the angelic realm. Scriptures attest to the fact that a third of the angels left with Lucifer, who became Satan, 
and the evil principalities and powers that exist today, they were not created by Jesus as evil. They were created by Christ as good. But in their freedom, they turned away from their Creator. Much like we as humans today often turn away from our Creator. But despite their turning, even in the angelic world, Paul makes clear that Jesus remains supreme over those thrones, those dominions, those principalities, and those powers. Verses 16 and 17 are so important because of the culture of false teaching that, would, that was arising in Colossae. Some were beginning to shun the worship of Christ and instead were turning to the principalities and powers. They were turning to other spiritual beings. And Paul writes and quotes this hymn conveniently because it speaks directly to the situation in the church in that city where there was false teachers beginning to worship angels. Paul says it's not the principalities and powers to whom you should be directing your attention. Jesus is supreme over them. He created them. To Him should you show regard. Um, you know, we, I want to just pause here briefly and just, just settle in our hearts for a minute the reality of uh, the angelic realm even in today's world. We're in the West. We're in, a, in the scientific world here in the West. We like technology. We like empiricism. We like to know how things work and we like to see it with our eyes and okay, I've got that. Let's move on to the next thing that I can understand and explain scientifically and mathematically. But you know what, friends? This world is a whole lot more than science and math. In fact, the scriptures are quite clear that, first of all, that God is supreme, that God reigns over all, and that the governments that are instituted by man and that are voted on by men and women or sometimes installed by force, that all these governments, all these organizations, all these systems, all these thrones are overseen by God and He knows everyone who's in charge and He allows it to occur. But sometimes... As in Romans 1, it says God gives us up to what we want. He gives us over to our desires. And when He does that for a country or, or a nation, in oppressive systems, in, in East Asia, and even in Western democracies, okay, when the people of those nations turn their backs on God's, He gives those nations over to the thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. And there becomes a culture that we can't see with our eyes, but is happening and is very, very real, in which the spirit world is very much at work in and among leaders and in and involved oppressive systems in this world. We ought not underestimate it. When you see a leader of a nation acting with violence, with evil intent, or even with just gross negligence, you can be sure that principalities and powers are at work. When you see systems in place 
that are oppressing people groups, that are suffocating the free actions of citizenry, you can be sure that principalities and powers are absolutely at work. All that is evil and that comes out of the systems of the world, be they governments or oppressive systems or even businesses that are exploiting their workers. I just read a story the other day of, of a woman who she opened up, I think it was a, a Christmas decoration, and in the decoration there was a note tucked in and she opened up the note and it was a letter written in English from a forced labor camp over in China. And the woman wrote a, a small letter saying, here's where I'm at. I'm at this labor camp in, in China. Would you please help us? We get, we're getting paid, I think it was a dollar a day, a month. Thank you, John. It was an unbelievable letter. And this woman, this, this American woman, received this Christmas decoration and found a note in it, and it was from a, a woman in an oppressive system in China. You can be sure that principalities and powers are at work, whether it's in China or whether it's right here in America. We need to be aware of the spiritual realm and nothing better that we can do but to pray for our leaders, pray for wisdom for our president, our Congress, our judges, our governors, our legislators. God, help our nation. Help us to be a beacon of light. Continuing in verse 17, And Jesus is before all things, and in Him all things consist. He is before all things. That there is temporal priority. He is the pre-existent One. You might also turn to Ephesians 1.4 to get a, a taste of what Paul's speaking of there. He's before all things, and in Him all things consist. That is, they hold together. The great part about that word consists there, the Greek word synestaken, it's written in the perfect tense, which means to say it has ongoing significance, that consisting, that glue. Paul says Jesus is the glue in whom the entire universe exists. Without Jesus, science wouldn't work. Without Jesus, mathematics wouldn't work. Without Jesus, all that we know, gravity, the air we breathe, it would not consist. Doug Moo writes, Christ stands at the beginning of the universe as the one through whom it came into being. And He also stands as its end, as the goal of the universe. Verse 18, And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. Verse 18 again, He is the head of the body. Now, Christ, now Paul pivots in this hymn. He pivots to what Christ is doing, not in the cosmos, not in the un, on the universal level, but on a more focused level. What is He doing for those men and women who are believers in Jesus? Paul says He's the head, the kephale of the body, the church. And like our bodies contain living organs in them, so also Christ contains all those who belong to Him. As the head, He controls the body. He gives the body life. He gives the body food, sustenance. He is the beginning. He is before all things. The Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. He's the beginning and the end. The author of life. 
And as Paul will now say, he is also the one through whom death has been redeemed. Look again at verse 18, the end of it. He is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Once again, this is not merely temporal. We, we mistake this if we think merely in terms of the first one to rise from the dead because Jesus raised Lazarus from physical death. But what Paul and the hymn is driving at is that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, he calls it elsewhere in, in 1 Corinthians. It is the guarantee of our resurrection. He is the founder of the resurrection. In Christ, all will be raised. By death, by man came death, but also by one man came the resurrection of the dead. In Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Some to the resurrection of the righteous, others to the resurrection of the unjust. All of it contingent upon whether you have faith in Jesus or not. That in all things he may have the preeminence. Christ has both temporal priority and authority and supremacy. God the Father did not see fit to give all these firstborn rights and privileges and supremacy to angels or any other created being. He reserved all this for Jesus. We close with verse 19 and 20. For it pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness should dwell and by Christ to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. It pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. As an earthly father loves to bless and give gifts to his child, so also God the Father was delighted to give to His Son, the eternally begotten Son, the highest honors in all the universe. And what about that word fullness? That in Him all the fullness should dwell. The word fullness there is the Greek word pleiramo. Pleiramo, excuse me. All of God dwells bodily in Christ. Let me say that again. All of God dwells bodily in Christ. Remember, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And Paul's choice of wording here Pleroma in Greek, fullness, is likely very significant. For Pleroma is known to have been used extensively in and around the church in Colossae, especially in the decades following Paul. The mystics, the pagans, they would use this word fullness to describe the kind of high, ascetic, spiritual experiences that they sought to gain through unique religious practices. A generation after Paul... Men and women known as the Gnostics were famous for using the term fullness, pleroma, in much of their writings. And so Paul, knowing the threat that was coming, anticipating the threat that was ahead, selected this hymn, this creed, this statement about Jesus to direct his attention at where the fullness of God really lies. Anticipating the wiles and the false teaching of the church in Colossae, Paul made it clear in verse 19 that only in Christ 
does all the fullness of God dwell. Only in Christ does all of the divine nature, is all of the divine nature found. Only in Christ, not in an angel, not in another spiritual being, only in Christ does the fullness of God dwell. Doug Moo again writes, this is a quotation toward the bottom of your outline, this is an important one. The false teachers in Colossae were inviting the Christians to experience true fullness by following their philosophy and their rules, to which Paul responds, the fullness that you are seeking is to be found in Christ. Not listed on your outline, Ben Witherington also writes, the implication is clear. There is no more, there is no more divine nature to be found in angels or lesser beings. Union with the divine must come through Christ or not at all. Verse 20, and by Jesus to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, reconcile, make right, make whole. Take note that even though Paul is painstakingly declaring that Jesus is the preeminent one, that Jesus is the supreme one, over all creation, and yet still, this hymn presupposes that Jesus' lordship over all things has been disrupted. And it's been disrupted by sin. That Jesus' reign has been hampered, in part, by Satan's wiles. And that that creation is in need of redemption and reconciliation. Though He is Lord of all, Jesus gave His creation the freedom to choose. To choose Him or to deny Him. In closing, I think of a typical Roman of that day. You think of a typical Greco-Roman man. He's got his idols on his mantle at home, he can see them. He can see his gods. He can worship those gods. He can light candles and incense and pray to those gods and he can visibly see those idols and he understands them. And he prays to them for favor. He prays to them for rain when he needs rain on his farm. He prays to them for a good harvest when he needs to take the crop. And I think of a pagan Greco-Roman man in the first century hearing the gospel story for the first time. He might have assumed that upon hearing the news that that, that the God of Israel gave His creation the freedom to choose Him or not. And as that Greco-Roman man came to learn that according to this Jewish God, Yahweh, they call him. According to that God, his creation turned on him, turned their backs on him. Do you know what a typical Roman man would have thought 
such a God would do to those people? A typical Roman man would have said, Aha, at this point in the story, I know what will happen next. The God of Israel will smite them. He will curse them. He will plague them. He will harm them. He will do evil to them. That's what a first century Roman man would have thought. Because that's how he understood his relationship to his gods. But herein lies the uniqueness of Christianity. In this Christ hymn is said something great. In this Christ hymn is said something that separates Christianity from every other worldly religion. Turned on by his very creation, Jesus, the preeminent one, the firstborn, the supreme one, Jesus, the exact image of God, he did not smite creation. Instead, he robed himself in flesh. He came to earth to live and die for the very ones who turned on him. And then he rose again, making peace through his blood on his cross. Jesus has offered reconciliation. Paul and the church at Colossae were singing these songs about Christ, songs of Christology, that they might that these words, this doctrine of how glorious Christ is and what He has done, that it might sink deep down. So that just as I got an A on my junior high U.S. President's test, so also you and I will know deep down how glorious and wonderful and amazing Jesus is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this song. We thank you for this hymn. We think of the early church and how they must have sung it or recited it. Perhaps Paul composed it for many churches to read and sing, or perhaps another disciple of Jesus. We don't know. But what we do know, Lord, is that it speaks so gloriously of all that we have in Jesus. He is, Lord, the preeminent one, the firstborn the one to whom you've afforded all rights, all privileges, all supremacy. And we bow before him. All that we are is because of him. All that we have is because of him. And all that we will have in heaven, because we believe in him, is because of what he has done for us. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.